Thank you, Andy. It has been a while since I've, I've been here, uh, but it's encouraging to see how, how the work has grown and to see what the Lord is doing through, uh, through this church. I'm just excited to hear news from Adam every now and then. I went to seminary with Adam uh, and with Dave both, and I know a lot of you from last time I was here, so thank you for, uh, for having me again. If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Adam asked me to teach on how the gospel impacts the way that we, we live. And uh, so my mind was drawn towards this passage. My, my wife actually told me this would be the perfect passage for it, and I've, I'm heeding her advice. First um, Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, I'm going to read verses 24 through 26. Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I don't know if you have field day here at elementary school, uh, elementary schools in Kingsburg, but growing up, I had field day. They corralled all of the second graders out to the, the grassy field. They put us in different events. I don't think we really got to volunteer as much as we were assigned or designated. I remember my very first field day experience. I saw the wheelbarrow race. You know, they hold by the feet and the you know, kids paddle like a dog across the grass. I remember different shuttle races and various you know, balancing acts and things. I got put into the three-legged race where some random other Second grader that I don't think I'd ever seen before in my life, we ha- had our legs tied together. And I had never experienced one of these events before. So we're watching the heats before us. There were several heats, and you know, they take the winners from the heats and for the three-legged championship. And we were watching the different heats, kind of get, get the hang of what we're supposed to be doing here. And it's an awkward little, uh, second grade is an awkward time, but even more so having your leg tied to a stranger's leg. And so we watched the other kids scurry across the grass and fall and collapse and I mean, it was just one step removed from, from NASCAR racing, just collisions everywhere and piling on top of each other, destruction derby kind of thing. And we watched the races, and so we decided we were not going to imitate the mistakes that everybody else was making. We were going to be slow and deliberate. Honestly, we thought the goal was to make it across the field without falling, and everybody else was clearly failing. So when our heat came out, we got to our line, you know, the... I picture the crowd going wild and the gun shooting in the air. Probably no crowd and no gun, but that's my second grade memory. And the gun goes and we start limping our way across the field slowly and deliberately. You know, my left, right, your right, left. We got it worked out. It's a military march here. And I'm sure we crossed the line more or less last, but we didn't fall. And that was the key to me. And so I thought we won. I thought we won our heat. I mean, we finished. We didn't fall. And compounding things, they gave us a ribbon. So surely we won. I, looking back on it, the ribbon said participant. Um, <laughs> but I was proud of that ribbon. I was proud. The heat for the champions came around, and we weren't invited. We weren't allowed. Um, and it was explained to us that the goal was actually to cross the line first, um, not upright. Which, uh, this is the kind of thing they should explain at the beginning, I feel like. I had the participant wall, pin, uh, participant medal pinned to my uh, wall for, for many years, I think, until I... Uh, learns the lack of dignity it takes to have a participant medal pinned to your wall. Well, the Bible uses a lot of metaphors about the Christian 
life. The Bible calls the Christian uh, a shining light, shining through the darkness. We're called branches on a vine. We're called strangers and pilgrims traveling through the world. We're compared to farmers who work hard in season. We're called travelers journeying around. We're called soldiers training for battle. We're compared to businessmen who are shrewd in our dealings. But perhaps the most common New Testament analogy for the Christian life is that of a runner or of an athlete. This morning we're looking at, a, looking at a passage that compares the Christian life to that of a life of a runner or of an athlete. Now let me tell you what a race is by telling you what a race is not. A race is not the second grade field day. A real race has winners and it has losers. It has discipline and self-control and training, not herding second graders onto a field. A real race is a contest that declares a winner. There are losers. It takes integrity and discipline to compete. It's not four meandering laps around the track in junior high. It's something that an athlete diligently trains for, sternly disciplines himself for. An athlete takes advantage of any opportunity or any sacrifice that will make him a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, a little bit more aggressive, a little bit meaner. Anything you can do to win for that competitive edge, an athlete does. And that's the New Testament example for how a Christian should live his life. Consider the training that athletes do. They wake up in the morning before the paperboy comes. They get out of bed. They run until they think their lungs are going to collapse and they run some more. And that's not just runners. Athletes in general for any sport live a different kind of lifestyle than other people. They wake up earlier, they eat better, they exercise more, they work harder than normal people. They lead a severely disciplined lifestyle. In one sense, when a person becomes an athlete, he's making a decision to have discipline as his livelihood. If an athlete becomes undisciplined, he loses his job, he loses his edge, he loses his money, he loses his life. It's a serious issue for a professional athlete. And that's, again, the analogy for the New Testament Christian. When you become a Christian, you're making the intentional decision to live differently than everybody else. You count the cost for how you're going to live your life, and you're deciding to devote the rest of your life to living differently than the world. My brother was on the Olympic ski team for the freestyle event, Mogul competition moguls in ballet there's an event called ballet on skis i'm not making it up you can google it later not now later he's on the olympic team for a few years he didn't make the uh, the team that went to the olympics the first time around but after he'd been on the team four years it was a year before the uh japan winter olympics and he quit the team and i remember him calling me and uh, my parents and telling us why he was leaving the team what he said is he looked at what it was going to take for the next year of his life to participate in the Olympics. And he looked at his, the previous years of his life, and he had made all kinds of sacrifices. You know, he didn't go to a normal school. He uh, didn't have any kind of free time. He lived in a boarding school, and they did events all winter, all summer. When there's no snow, they're out in rivers and running up mountains and crazy things like that. And he said he looked at what the next year of his life would be like, and his coach told him, this next year in preparation for the Olympics won't be anything like you've experienced before. You thought you had freedoms before, which my brother did not, but his coach said, you thought you had freedoms before? No more for you. And he left the team. He looked at what it would take and decided, I'm not in it for this next year. There's a choice that he made that made sense to me. I got it. He didn't want to live that kind of life. Olympic athletes are those that make the choice to keep going in that circumstance, to go through and to press through. And the Bible compares Christians to runners. Psalm 119, verse 32, 
the writer of Psalm 119 declares, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Romans 9.16, Romans 15.30, both compare the Christian life to a race. It doesn't depend on him who wills or him who runs. Paul urges us to strive together in prayer, strive being an athletic metaphor, reaching for the prize. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all the energy that he powerfully works within me. In fact, Paul, looking back on the life of John the Baptist, when John the Baptist was martyred in Acts 13, Paul describes John's life as having finished his race and run his course. The race analogy is one that the Corinthians would have been familiar with. The, some of the most famous games in the Roman Empire, not the Olympic games, but the Isthmian games were held in Corinth. This is a massive event. People traveled from around the empire to attend the event. People would come from all over. Winners would be awarded citizenship. If, an, if a foreigner competed in the event and he won or he placed, he would be declared a citizen of the Roman Empire. If a slave competed and he placed, he was granted his freedom. The winners were paraded through town. They had a wreath put around them. They were paraded through town on, you know, thrown up on sticks and walked through the town with heralds blowing their trumpets. They were recorded in literature. Homer's Iliad, for example, and the Odyssey declares the winners of the Isthmian Games. The winners were treated as immortals. They have events that we'd be familiar with. The Isthmian Games had wrestling, boxing, javelin, and discus. But the highlight of the Isthmian Games was the marathon. All of the running races were really the, the pinnacle. But the marathon was the most significant. It happened in the last day of the Games. They would herd the athletes into the stadium. They would lay out for them the course. So they would do a walkthrough sometimes days before, show them all the markers, but they'd get them in the stadium. They would declare the rules, what shortcuts you're not allowed to take, where the course actually goes, the consequence for breaking the rules. The crowd would be packed in the stadium. The runners would be launched off. They'd run their race hours later, you know, two hours later, three hours later, they'd return to the stadium. The crowd waiting there, seeing the first runners go through the stadium. They would do their final lap around the Corinthian stadium in front of the the crowd going crazy. Like I said, the winners were treated as heroes, the epitome of what it meant to be a Roman citizen. And this is the analogy that Paul uses here to describe the Christian life. It's a race. It's a marathon. In fact, verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? And the, the Greek phrase there for in a race is entering the stadium. Do you not know that all the runners as they enter the stadium? So it's the language that the Corinthians would conjure up the marathon. They would conjure up the first runners. They've been gone on their race all day long, and yet they enter the stadium. Let me tell you something. The person who comes in the stadium fourth or fifth or sixth place in the marathon knows they're not winning the prize. And yet they don't tap out. They come into the stadium. They do the circuit in front of the crowd. They run as if they will receive the prize. And this is the analogy Paul gives to the Christian life. From this race analogy here in 1 Corinthians 9, I want to take three descriptions of the Christian race. I want to give you three descriptions of the Christian race this morning. I think that understanding the analogy of how the race is compared to the Christian life will help you understand how the gospel influences the way that you live. It changes how you live. It corrupts your thinking in a good sense. It alters your life. It makes you live differently because of what the gospel has done in your hearts. The first description of this race, this race is hard. 
The Christian race is hard. It is difficult. It's a challenging race. The Christian life is not passive. Paul doesn't compare the Christian life to those in the stands. He doesn't compare them to the hot dog vendor. He compares the Christian life to those who are persevering. It's an active endurance. It's compared elsewhere, and even in this passage, to fighting, to boxing, to striving, to being a soldier. Those are active metaphors. There's no such thing as a lazy farmer. Well, I guess there is. He's a hungry farmer. No such thing as a lazy boxer. There's a loser. You learn your lesson quick and you work at Starbucks instead. There's no such thing as a a foolish businessman. He'd be a poor businessman. There's no such thing as an undisciplined athlete. The Christian life is hard. It's challenging. It's not about letting go and letting God. It's fighting the fight of your life. Yes, you trust Christ in your Christian life. He's our strength. He's the one that teaches us how to fight. He shows us what sins we take on. He shows us how to fight. He shows us how to win. He convicts us of sin. He gives us the desire for holiness. But we still fight the fight. Nowhere in the Bible is the idea that you sit back and you let Christ live your life for you. Nowhere is that presented. The Bible presents the Christian life as active, as disciplined, as difficult, We're freed from sin so that we can run. We have the yoke of sin burdens us before salvation. That yoke is taken from us. We have a yoke that is light so that we can run hard is the idea. He didn't free us from sin so that we could relax spiritually and call it holiness. He freed us from the power of sin so that we can fight the corruption of the world, the corruption of the flesh, the corruption of the devil, so we can take on life as God meant it to be. Just like any life, the Christian life, ha- just like any race, the Christian life has rules to be followed, a track to be won, and a prize to be gained. There are daunting obstacles, the threat of injury, and dangers at every turn. And yet the race is marked out for us, and we're freed to run the race as God meant it. And it will not be an easy race. This is a hard race, the Christian life. Our religion doesn't consist of enthusiastic feelings, empty theological debates, or philosophy that's in our head but not our hearts. Christianity exists in holy living, straining forward, striving for the prize, laying aside every sin that entangles and reaching forward to Jesus. That's our life. It's called a Christian race, not a Christian walk. Why is it so hard? Why is the race so hard? Because there are rules. There are rules to this race that are laid out in the word of God. How we live our life is described for us. In fact, 1 Corinthians 10 is gonna give us some of those rules, which we won't get into this morning. Rules make it hard because we are lazy spiritually. It's easier to sleep in than to get up and go running. It's easier to have the milkshake than to say no to the milkshake. It's easier to do what you want to do than to follow the rules. If rules were easy, they wouldn't be called rules. They're difficult. In in the Corinthian races, the trumpet would announce at the beginning of the race. The trumpet would sound, and then the herald would read the list of the rules for the race. And anyone who didn't compete according to the rules was disqualified. And this is what 2 Timothy 2.5 says when Paul writes, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. In the Olympic Games, if you cheated, you would have your citizenship stripped from you. You were declared a foreigner and made a slave. You were considered a disgrace. This is Paul's idea here when he says the Christian life has rules laid out for us and we compete according to them so that we will not be disqualified. 
The rules require discipline. They're not easy rules. In the context here of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul is talking about all the freedoms he could have as a pastor. Paul says, I could be paid for my ministry. I have the freedom to be paid, but I set that aside so as to not cause you to stumble. He says, I could eat food offered to idols, but I set that aside to not cause you to stumble. He says, I could be freed from the, from the Levitical law. I could eat whatever I want to, but I set those freedoms aside to keep the Jews from stumbling. Paul says, I could take a wife with me wherever I go. I have that freedom, but I set that aside to keep you from stumbling. Why does Paul do that? So that he can run harder. This is what God has called him to. This is the task God has given him. When Paul became a preacher, when God called him to the wilderness and made him a preacher, this was the choice that Paul made. He put on the uniform and he set aside those freedoms. Every one of us has different sacrifices. We don't make the same sacrifice as Paul made. But we have sacrifices before us. We have choices we make. And running the Christian life requires living a life differently than the rest of the world. We don't do the things the world makes. We don't spend our money the way the world spends our money. We don't enjoy the same sinful pleasures the world enjoys. We set aside this season of pleasure for the point of running our Christian race. It's difficult. We don't break the rules. We're like Moses who looks at all the riches of the kingdom and says, I don't want those. I'd rather suffer with God's people. That's how the Christian life is. We look at all of the riches that sin offers, all of the joy that sin offers, all the things that money can buy that we could spend on ourselves, and we say, no, no, no. We'll use our money differently, we'll use our time differently, and we will find different things pleasing. We will take delight in this world in different ways than everybody else because we are running a race. We're on a different course than the rest of the world. We have a different destination. We have different rules. We have a different course. This is how we live our life. Again, consider the athlete. He runs when he would rather rest. He eats a balanced meal when he'd rather have that milkshake. He goes to bed when he'd rather stay up. He gets up when he would rather sleep. This is his life. He makes his body his slave, not the other way around. So often people become slaves to their bodies. Their body tells them what to do. Their body says, eat now, sleep now, do this now. I want this. The lust of the flesh, the pride of the eyes, the boasting of life dictates to people what they do. So they're they become slaves to their own desires, to their own lust, to their own body. Not the athlete. He beats his body. He gets it into submission. He tells it what to do and when to do it. He leads his body. He doesn't follow it. And that's what Christians do with their desires. We own our desires, not the other way around. Our desires say, we want this, and we say, no, you serve me because I serve Jesus. That's why this race is difficult. It's difficult because it's long. It's not a sprint. This is not over in 30 seconds. It's not a photo finish. It's the race of your life. When you turn to Christ, when you repent from sin and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the starting line. That's the gun. Off you go. The rest of your life is before you. Your life isn't over when you come to Christ. It's just beginning. It's called being born again. You've died to sin and you're now launched off in a new life, a brand new life, 
a brand new course. Everything is new to you when you become a Christian. Your eyes are open to the world now. You're sensitive to sin and you delight in the life as God meant it to be lived and you run your race embracing the things that are holy, embracing what is pure, embracing what is noble and you have your whole life in front of you to race. Salvation is the starting point but that's also what makes it difficult is that it goes the rest of your life. There's no timeouts in the Christian life. There's no commercial breaks. The rules always apply. You're always a Christian. From the point of your salvation to the moment you're in glory, you're running the race and the temptations are always there. The threat of disqualification always around the corner. The allure of sin everywhere in this fallen world. And the rest of your life marks out that race. Which is also good news. In a sprint, some people just have natural ability. Over 30 seconds, genetics have a lot to do with it. Not so in a marathon. The longer the race, the more that your training comes into play and the less the, the way you were made. The longer, I mean, the longer the time, the more all that stuff evens out and it solely comes down to how disciplined you are. That's the point of the Christian life. It is the rest of your life. You can be as holy as you want to be. It all comes down to how disciplined you are how much you fan the flame of godliness, Paul says, that's inside of your heart, stoking the passions for that which is holy and pure and noble. What kind of person will you be on this race? Every single athlete who runs, runs to win. You don't go through the whole thing of a marathon and say, you know, you don't interview an Olympic athlete before the marathon. He's like, yeah, I just hope I, just hope I finish. These years of training, here I am, flown out to the Olympics, here I am. Yeah, winning, not in me. I just want to show up. Hope I can help the team. No way. It's the kind of discipline that comes, not for a season, but for a life of endurance. It's difficult because this course is marked out by suffering. It's marked out for us. We have the race in front of us and it's marked by suffering. I got asked to referee a cross-country race once. I didn't think that cross-country races had referees, um, but they do, apparently. I was a high school teacher, and the athletic director walked into my classroom one day and said, I need you to referee the cross-country meet today. Now, I'm a referee. I've refereed soccer. I've refereed basketball. I've umpired baseball. So I'm thinking, there's this, hey, I got, I got it in my blood. I'll go referee a cross-country meet. You know, I picture like a yellow card and a red card. And you're out of here. Instead, this is what refereeing a cross-country meet looks like. There's the course. And uh, maybe in the Olympics, they're not like this, but in high school cross-country meets, they meander around this path, and there's like arrows spray-painted on the dirt, which, you know, disappear when four people run by them, and signs hanging on the trees. It's like, I picture them with the wind, the arrow can point whichever way you want it to go. And so they walk the runners through the course and say, here you go this way, here you go this way. In this race that I was refereeing, they start up this hill, they run this course, they come down, they run around the campus, back to the downhill part again, and then onto the soccer field where the victory is, where the, the finish line is. So my job, I'm supposed to stand at the entrance to the soccer field and watch the runners and make sure all the ones coming down the hill don't go into the school, but go around the school and then go into the school. Because you could shave like five minutes off your time if you just didn't do the around the school part. Jog down the hill, finish line. So my job as a referee is to sit here and watch which is not really fun as a referee. I mean, it's kind of watching a high school cross-country meet. So there I am, 
like this, grumpy now because this is, you know, boring as all get out. But then I see the guy. I see him from Campbell Hall is the school, an Episcopal school. What do you expect? (laughs) And he comes down the hill and he looks around and he cuts in to the school and he runs and he's the first runner across the finish line. He wins the race and everybody's celebrating. And I'm thinking, and he's not the first one down the hill. There were all kinds of other people down the hill in front of him but he's the first one across the finish line. So I had like this stream of people running by me. He's cheating. I don't know what to do. I don't have a whistle. I don't have a yellow card or a red card. I'm out of my element here. So I run and I go get the athletic director. He cheated. He cheated. He cheated. Speaking in tongues practically to him. So excited. I caught a cheater. And they go up to the guy and they confront him. He denies it. No, I didn't cheat. I ran around the whole school. And so they walk him out and show him, where did you run? And they ask him, were there school buses on the backside of the school? He has no idea. Uh, Maybe. Cheating. Disqualified. And I celebrated. (laughs) Victory for justice. He broke the rules by not running the course that is marked out for him. How is the Christian life marked out for us? Where are the signposts? Well, there's rules in the word of God, but what is the markings on our course? Scripture tells us, that the race is marked out for us by the suffering of Jesus, that we run the same course that Jesus ran. We don't follow spray paint, we follow the life of Jesus. We follow the course that he laid, and the course that he laid is marked by suffering. That's why this race is hard. We will make decisions in life and forego freedoms in life that are difficult and that will cause suffering in this life. Just in the basic material sense, we won't spend money on things that would give us joy that the rest of the world embraces because we use our money differently. We don't enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin for a season because we reject that. And that's hard. It's hard to buffet the flesh. It's a form of suffering. In most of the world, Christians face persecution for their faith. That's a form of suffering. And that's because we follow the course that Jesus ran. We're following him. So the Christian race is hard. Secondly, there is a prize. The Christian race has a prize. It's a hard race, but it comes with a prize. If you win this race, there will be a reward. I've received some pretty lame awards in my soccer youthful playing history. I remember in AYSO you receive the cheesiest trophies, like these little, you know, like gold soccer balls that if the wind blows, they fall off of the frame and, you know, your name is misspelled on the plaque kind of thing. Jesse, how hard is Jesse? Amazed how many vowels different trophy makers throw into that word. You know, the, the little cheesy soccer ball gets varnished. Sometimes you've got like the half foot kicking the soccer ball. It looks like an amputated leg kicking the soccer ball and I'm supposed to take it home. It's like, you know, freshman C team, most valuable de- pl- defender, most valuable player, defender, runner-up. <laughs> Great, I'll put that on the wall next to the participant medal. Those things all perish. The runners in the Olympic Games received a wreath, like a, a Christmas wreath from pine trees. They were cedar, but it's the same idea. The, the needles, they have needles, and they'd weave them together and put them, and they'd put flowers in them and stuff. They were colorful, but they were pine needles. 
And your Christmas tree barely makes it to New Year's Day. And they would put this around their neck and they'd be paraded around. And it was a celebration. Now, they didn't do it for the actual needles. It's not like they liked the needles. They did it for the glory and the fame and the honor that came with it. I mean, the trumpet would blow. This person is the champion of this event and everybody would honor him until next year when there's a different champion. In some sense, the fame and the honor and the immortality that came with winning the, the games was as fleeting as the pine needles. Might take 11 more months, but it was gone just the same. It was as perishable as the wreath. That's not what we run for. We don't run for a participant medal. We don't run for a cheesy soccer ribbon. We don't run for a perishable wreath. We don't even run for the fame and the accolades that come from being a gold medal winner at the Olympic Games. That's not what we compete for. We have an imperishable prize. We have a prize that doesn't wither, that doesn't fade, that moth doesn't corrupt, that doesn't rust, that cannot be stolen. We run for an eternal reward which cannot be seen. There is a reward that lives outside of our realm of experience that cannot be captured or stolen or corrupted. And this is what we run for. This is what motivates us. In the Olympic Games, when the marathon runners would enter the stadium, they would have the wreaths hanging at the end of the stadium. They'd run their track around the whole fans. And when they get along that final stretch, the wreaths would be hanging there. So you would see it. The last couple hundred meters of your race, you would have the prize hanging on the wall. And that's what would strive you to press forward. It would prod you on to reach forward and grab hold of that prize. It would be yours if you could get to it first. And they did that for a perishable wreath. In our Christian life, we press on for an imperishable prize. It does not corrupt. And in the Christian race, what is our prize? A prize, other passages, we'll look at a few in a second, teach us that our prize is Jesus. We reach forward for Jesus Christ. He is our prize. He is what we're rewarded. We receive him when we die. We are made like him when he appears. We work to this end. It is for this end we strive to be made in the image of Christ. Paul says, this is what I labor over, to see Christ formed in you. This is the mystery of the gospel, Christ in us. This is why we train. That is what our goal is. This is our prize to lay hold of Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.13 says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. An athlete always forgets what's behind him, you're reaching forward, focused on the prize, straining forward. I picture the, the relay race where the, the runner behind is reaching forward as far as he, as he can to reach the baton ahead of him. In the Christian life, we will die and stand before God and he will reward us, Paul says, for the deeds done in the flesh. We will receive a prize from him, a reward from him. This is the Bema Seat judgment is the word Paul uses in 2 Corinthians. And the Bema Seat is the, is the name that they described to where the, victory, where the victors, where the winners of the contest were to take their seat. That's the, the throne we will stand in front of, where God will give us our rewards for how we lived our life. And our reward is Jesus Christ, the privilege of serving him more closely, 
of going into the kingdom with Jesus Christ and he returns with his angels and with his saints and establishing his kingdom on earth on serving Jesus in his kingdom. Our reward is serving the one whom we serve in this life more closely with increased fellowship, of working closer to him, of laboring with him on this planet as he designed it to be lived on. That's our reward. Fellowship with Jesus Christ, service with Jesus Christ, the knowledge of Jesus Christ in the flesh. That is our reward. In the new heavens and the new earth, seeing Christ reign in his glory. That is our reward. And that's what motivates us. And that's why it's imperishable. The glory of Jesus Christ established on this planet will never fade. When he comes with his angels and his holy ones and brings about his kingdom and he'll reward the believers in this life with how they live in the kingdom, that will never fade. That's knowledge that will endure throughout the new heavens and throughout the new earth. Fellowship with our Lord and Savior. That's why we run the race. That's what we're after. The ability to see and serve Jesus Christ even more, face to face, wanting to lay hold of Jesus. That's what motivates us in this race. That's why we live. That's why we run. We want to be made like him and to love him and to know him. Paul says, verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. A friend who just ran in the LA Marathon, he was a little bit on the heftier side a few months ago, uh, not in quite tip-top marathon shape, but uh, he, he was disciplined. He got up, he'd do, you know, the morning jog, the afternoon jog, the evening jog. He got pretty crazy into this whole thing. And uh, his goal, he was not an Olympic athlete. His goal was not to win. His goal was to finish the race. But what he wanted was the, the marathon shirt that said runner. You know, everybody told him, there's no way you can do this. He wanted the shirt. And I thought, I mean, this is hours he's doing, you know? I would chat him on, on the computer at like 7 in the morning. He's like, yeah, just back from my 10-mile run. 7 in the morning, man. That's crazy. Why are you doing this again? I want the shirt. All right. You know, I can probably get you one. I mean, <laughs> I could buy one on eBay. I'm sure of it. No, no, I want the shirt. All right. And a gold medal, if you think of it, is just a little bit better than the shirt. I mean, it's gold. It's probably worth more than the T-shirt the very least. But in the eternal sense, I mean, what does that even matter? It's insignificant. And they make obscene sacrifices to get that insignificant medal. We run for such a higher privilege, such a higher calling. Which leads to our third point. Our race makes us more like Jesus. Our race makes us more like Jesus. And here's where the athletic metaphor kind of goes by the wayside. Here's where the Christian life is different. When you run the Christian life, you become like the prize that you're reaching for. The prize has a way of changing you. It has a way of, of corrupting you in that, but I, that's why I meant by corrupting in a good sense. You are running your race and you're looking at the prize. You're fixed on the prize, which is Jesus Christ, revealed in the scripture, residing in your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you're looking at. That's what you're focusing on. That's what you're straining forward to. 
But as you're running this race, as you're obeying Jesus Christ, you are being transformed so that you become like your prize. You begin to look like your prize. You become to act like your prize. You take on the characteristics of Jesus as you run this race. This is why Hebrews 12 says, therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, again, borrowing analogy from the, the, the marathon entering the stadium, surrounded by the fans. Let us lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured this cross, despising the shame, is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. As we run a race, we look to Jesus and we become like Jesus. The Christian life has the put-off, put-on method of sanctification. An athlete doesn't just give up milkshakes and win the marathon. He has to actually go running. You put off the sin and then you run. It's not just blatant sins either. It's wrong dreams, wrong plans, wrong friends that can hinder the race. Anything that slows you down, you get rid of. A bag of gold slows you down as much as a bag of lead. A temptation or distraction that maybe not even in itself is, itself is sinful. If it distracts you from the Christian race, you put it aside. You put it aside because you want to race. And it doesn't just end with the putting off. You then have to train. You have to put on. You have to get rid of sin and follow and run. If all it took was giving up eating ridiculous things, vegans would be gold medalists all the time. But there's a certain training that goes with it. I once worked for a landscaping company, The Cutting Edge. thought it was a clever name. We had this lady that wanted us to clean out her front yard, to take all, it was covered with dead grass and rocks and gravel and wood chips, the dead bugs living in it, take everything out of her front yard. So we rented this giant, you know, yellow bulldozer, which I lived in a city, like this was a huge deal for me, driving this thing everywhere out here. I mean, this is pretty cool. Learned what the word double clutch means. Ripped out her front yard. Destroyed it. All gone, which is what she wanted. And she was really particular with this. She wants all the weeds gone from her yard. Oh, those weeds are gone. I mean, <laughs> looks like a bomb went off in her front yard. There's nothing there. So, done. Well, we get a call from her like four or five months later, and she's furious with us because there's weeds all over her front yard. And had we done what she told us to do, there wouldn't be weeds any there any weeds there? And we're like, so we go and look, and sure enough, there's weeds everywhere in the front yard. It looks just like we left it four months earlier, except now it's covered in weeds. So we try to explain to her that this is the way the world works. We live in a fallen world. world. Weeds grow. Um, I don't want to get like, you know, preachy to you, but weeds grow. Sin is in the world. That's the way it works. We removed your yard. Weeds are going to grow if you don't put anything else there. No, no. If you would have gotten the, re- the weeds at the roots, they wouldn't grow back. What, are you picturing like a vacant dirt field the rest of your life? Is that what you're picturing? And she says, yes. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice if that was the way it worked? We told her, no, you have to actually plant good things there or at least put a trash bag over it or something. You can't just take it all out and just stare at it and let it stay there. The Christian life is like that in the sense that you put away the sins But then you have to press on. Then you have to run. Then you have to put forward. 
putting on running shorts and standing in your front yard doesn't make you an athlete. You have to, I don't know, jog. (laughs) You lay aside the sin and you press forward in the race. And this is a race you can lose. Paul is afraid, it appears, of being disqualified. Look at what he does in verse 26. He doesn't run aimlessly. He has the purpose here. He doesn't box as one beating the air. I mean, imagine somebody boxing the air. They would win, I guess. Verse 27. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Less after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. Not everybody who, wins the, who runs the race will win the race. There are people who run, who run the race who don't win. My wife was raised in the church. She says it's astonishing for her to think about her high school group at the church. You know, 20 of her friends that she was in a small group with, which is barely a small group, but big church. 20 of her friends that she was in a small group with, there's like two or three of them that are following the Lord this, to this day. And you look around the room, and there are people who are in this room right now that won't be here in three years, who will leave for the pleasures of sin, the, the desires of this life. People quit all the time. And we know the big, bigger theological principle, once saved, always saved, when you're really regenerate, you will finish the race, you will run with the endurance because it's the Holy Spirit that empowers you. That's the flip side. But what Paul is showing here is that he is terrified of being disqualified. He wants to run the race with discipline, following the rules, buffeting his body, fleeing the pleasures of sin. If you quit, you lose. There's people who stumble in marathons all the time. had a friend, Shiloh was her name. She was secretary at the seminary. She was training for a marathon with some of my roommates. Uh, you know, it was like not a real marathon, like one of the marathons was a half marathon and a quarter marathon, <laughs> which is an extended jog pretty much. But she was preparing for that and, uh, you know, for months. And the whole group of them went and ran this marathon. It was a half marathon up in Sacramento. And she collapsed about 600 yards from the finish line. So just over a quarter, you know, however long that is, a uh, quarter mile from the finish line collapses and uh, has to get, you know, ambulance, stretcher, hospital, IVs, dehydrated. They rehydrate her, let her out of the hospital. And, this is, you know, the marathon is long since done by here. Everybody's gone home. There's trash all over the ground is what's, what's left there. But her friends take her back to the spot where she fell, and she gets up and walks across the finish line. You know, how dramatic. And, you know, the, all the people are already home and everything. Nobody saw except her and her friends. But her point was, if I quit, I didn't finish. I mean, I can get stretchered off to the hospital, but I'm not quitting. I will finish the race. The Christian life will have stumbles in it. It will have falls. It can't have quitting. It requires the discipline to press through. But this is a winnable race. Some have dropped out. Some have been sidelined by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the race is winnable. Others have won. In Hebrews chapter 11, there's a long list of people that have won the race. And Paul says they're waiting to be crowned so that they can be crowned with you. Jesus won the race. He ran the race. He pressed forward and he finished. And it's his spirit that empowers us. Just like any race, there are rules to be followed, a track to be run, and a prize to be gained. There are obstacles, injuries, and dangers. But in our race, the prize is heaven. The starting line is salvation. The finish line is not visible. It can come at any time. But we know that it's in front of us, and we know that the rules are laid out in the word.
This is why Paul at the end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, 7, can say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me also, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul wrote 2 Timothy 4, 8, for he died, and some of his last words were, I have finished my race. I will receive the crown. Unlike the Olympic marathon, we're not racing against each other. (laughs) We don't trip other Christians. (laughs) You should totally sin. See that? Steal it. (laughs) More holiness for me. The prize is Christ. All who follow him will be rewarded by him. We're not competing against each other. We're competing against the lust of the flesh, competing against sin. And those are real obstacles that will stumble people, that will trip me, that will trip people. But it's worth it. All the sacrifice, all the change is worth it. You never see a marathon winner put the gold medal around his neck and say, hey, when all's said and done in hindsight, this just wasn't worth it. (laughs) I mean, I won it all, but Man, I would have rather been playing video games. They don't say that. You'll never see a Christian at the end of his life say, you know what? It just wasn't worth it. I wish I would have sinned more. I wish I would have enjoyed the world more. I wish I wouldn't have put off all that sin. I wish I would have embraced more sin. I just wish I would have had more sinful. You know what? I wish I would have spent more of my money on things for me, on pleasure for me. All this investing in missions and kingdom work, too much. They don't say that. It was worth it because sin is fleeting, whereas our prize is uncorrupted and uncorruptible. I don't mean to sound like I'm saying do good and try harder and be a better person. What I want to tell you is that there is a race that's in front of you that it takes discipline and sacrifice to win, and you should count the cost to run it. Christian life isn't easy, and I want you to know that. But I want you to know that the gospel changes the way you view your life. You go from running the rat race that everybody else is running to being an athlete in competition, to having things that you put away, sins and enticements that you put away, and having a purpose in your life. Going from living like everybody else to having a solid purpose laid out before you in your life, it gives meaning to your life. It gives direction. It's a course. You're a runner wandering aimlessly in a cornfield who's been snatched aside and placed on the track and said, this is why I made you for this race right here, right now. Run with purpose. Go. You're set free. It's a difficult race, but it brings meaning to your life. It's so much easier than wandering in a cornfield. It's having the the purpose of life laid out before you. It's having the Spirit of God placed inside of you, being empowered for this run. It's having the lust of the flesh that appeals to everybody in this world. It traps everybody in. People get suckered in by the allure of sin and think this will provide meaning to life, and it never does. It destroys their lives. And you don't fall for that. You're made into an athlete who has discipline, who runs the race because you want to be made like the prize. 
You want to become like Jesus. He's the one that made you. He's the one that called you. He's the one that put you on this course. And you want to become like him. And you do that by running hard after him. This is how the gospel changes your life. It's not merely a set of things you believe. It's the rules for your life. And it becomes what empowers you in your life. It changes everything about you. It's no longer he who dies with the the most toys wins. It's this is how I want to live my life. Setting aside all of those things and becoming like Jesus Christ. This is why God made us. Rosie Ruiz was born in 1953 in Havana, Cuba. Immigrated to the United States. She was seven. Grew up in Florida. Decided to become a marathon runner in 1978. She did not have a particularly athletic figure. Some of you may remember the story. Or she wasn't, you wouldn't see her in the mall and go, that's a marathon runner. But in 1978, she decided to become a marathon runner. She started training, started running. And in 1979, she ran her first marathon, New York Marathon. She took 26th place in the New York Marathon, which is good, right? Um, Then that qualified her for the Boston Marathon in 1979, less than a year after she started marathon running, which she won. And not only did she win, she set the world record for fastest time for a woman in any marathon anywhere in the world. And the fastest time in the Boston Marathon ever after she had been running for less than a year. And, you know, got her picture in the front page of newspapers and everything. It was the next day when some people came forward who were riding a subway between two posts on the, uh, the marathon that recognized her picture from the front page of the newspaper as a woman that they were on the subway with during the marathon. And so these people came forward and said, we were on a subway ride with her when she was winning the marathon. How could that be? And then some other runners started saying, yeah, I noticed some weird things about her too. Um, for example, when she had the, you know, the metal place around her neck, the judge said she smelled vaguely like she'd been smoking cigarettes um, at the end of the marathon. Uh, then the doctors came forward. You know, the, all the people who, won the marathon, who finished the marathon get examined by, by doctors afterwards. The doctors came forward and said, yeah, her heart rate at the end of the marathon was 76, uh, which if you don't know a lot about heart rates, shows that she did not just finish running a marathon, firstly. Uh, and the, a marathon runner's resting heartbeat is like 52, not 76. Um, so something's not quite right here. And then another person came forward from the New York Marathon and said, actually, we rode the subway to the end, and then she wandered in and checked in at the first aid station and said that she was injured while she was running the race. And so she knew the marathon protocol. They were injured, so they checked her off as having finished the race. 26th woman. So she became outed as a fraud. Her defense, by the way, and she's still alive today, and, and she gives interviews every now and then. Every, it seems like every few years this comes back up in the news cycle. She maintains that she didn't break any of the rules. Uh, she said the rules were never spelled out to her, that you were not allowed to take the subway, <laughs> for example. That wasn't made clear to her. Um, hey, she was brand new at this thing. Uh, she's disqualified, lost her medal, lost the world record for both of those things. Uh, it was interesting, the girl who took second place, now first, got the new world record for fastest time in the marathon. Imagine being cheated by that, like you just broke the world record for fastest female time in a marathon and you took second place to a lady who rode a subway smoking a cigarette. 
as a Christian, we don't run a race like Rosie Ruiz. It's easy to take shortcuts. People don't know. Most of your race is in private. People who have no idea, as long as you show up at the occasional milepost and check in, you're here two out of four Sundays, you'll get away with it, I promise. But that's not the way that we run. We follow a Savior who never once took a shortcut, who never once broke a rule, who never once sinned. That's the one that we follow. We're on his course. And we see where it got him, don't we? Hated by the world. God in human flesh, totally sinless, and yet killed, martyred for our sin, killed on behalf of us, crucified for our sin. And he says, hey, if they treat me like this, why would you be treated any differently? Why would you expect to be treated better than me? If the world hates the teacher, they'll hate the student. And yet he rose from the grave. And he didn't just rose, rise from the grave and ascend to heaven absent-mindedly, he rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, directing our race, empowering us, saving us, changing us, putting us on the track and pressing us forward. Because of that, we run our race, totally changed and transformed by the gospel. We don't want to cheat the Christian race because this is why we were made. So my appeal to you is to run your race with dignity, with discipline, with determination, Stretch forward to the prize. Don't act as if you've obtained it. Act as if you're reaching for it and that you'll spend your rest of your life straining for it so that when you do obtain it, when you do come face to face with him, you'll see him, you'll be made like him because of how you love him in this race. Lord, thank you for laying out the course before us. Thank you for charting how we're to run, for how we are to live for giving us the rules, for laying out the prize in front of us, not just laying out the prize, but becoming the prize. Lord, we pray that you would transform us from one image of glory into another. That as we shed sin, that we would be made more like you, our sinless Savior. God in human flesh, crucified on a tree, rose on the third day. That we would follow your path. Keep us from falling into the traps of the world. Help us be disciplined athletes. Buffet our bodies. Help us buffet our bodies, control ourselves, make our bodies our own slaves so we can put away the lure of flesh and the lure of sin. Lord, you made us with a purpose, and that purpose is to be like you, to spread your gospel, to separate from sin in the world, and to be made like you. Lord, help us run this race. We have Paul as our example who put aside the freedoms he could have had even in the kinds of food he ate and the kind of clothes he wore. He put aside his freedoms so the gospel could go to more and more people. Lord, help us make sacrifices to reach others with the gospel. Financial sacrifices so the gospel can go around the world. Personal sacrifices so that our lives are filled with integrity. Help us be examples to our family, to those in our church, to those in our community. Help us run the race with discipline and integrity. Knowing that as we press forward to the prize, we will die. We will close our eyes one day. And we will be transformed, perhaps, in the twinkling of an eye. And we will see you. And you will 
have a stand before your Bema seat and you will reward us for our race. We look forward to that day because we look forward to seeing you. We don't want our prize. We don't want our crown because we want a trophy. We want our crown. We want our prize because it is you and there's nothing we desire apart from you. Lord, help us run this race. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.